with me to Exodus chapter 33 is where we're going to be in the Word today. Exodus chapter 33, and welcome to week 9 of our Dangerous Prayers series where we are walking through some powerful biblical prayers. We've said um, every week these are not safe prayers, they're not easy prayers, but they are um, beneficial prayers. They're also dangerous prayers, and they're dangerous in a very good way. And just think about uh, kind of what we view or how we view danger. And I've said this at the beginning of our, our study back uh, many months ago, but just think about how we um, would describe or what we would say to be dangerous. I think we would all agree that driving a, a motorcycle with no helmet or headlight on a two-lane highway in the mountains through a snowstorm at night um, would be dangerous. I know Brother John said, been there, done that, and got the t-shirt, but we would say dangerous. Um, going to the circus and volunteering to be shot out of the cannon, um, we would say that would be dangerous. Jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, um, we would say that would be dangerous. Um, driving or riding in a car um, with a 15-year-old driver, um, we would say dangerous. Or asking a woman her age would be very dangerous. So um, we think about these dangerous things, and then we say, Praying? Is praying really dangerous? Isn't praying what um, sweet grandmothers are supposed to do? Um, isn't praying supposed to ensure our safety and our comfort? How could we say that praying is dangerous? What could we possibly mean when we say dangerous prayers? And what we have meant is that there are biblical prayers that if we pray them in humility and honesty of heart, God will answer them um, and do something in our lives that will completely transform us all the while us understanding that we are not in control, he is. And when we think about that thought, there's danger there. Um, that we're not in control. God is in control. We don't know where he is leading us, and it feels dangerous at times, yet he's in control. So we take comfort in that. And this morning we come to a prayer that I believe God loves to answer. It is the prayer, God, show me your glory. When our souls hunger, when we feel like we are running on empty tanks, when we are just running on fumes, a, a go-to request um, is the powerful, honest, humble plea, Father, show me your glory. Think about this. We live in a world that God created to show forth his glory. Psalm 19 says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. We read Genesis 1. We have been made in the image of God to declare his glory. But we will never fully reflect him if we haven't yet stood in awe of who he is. Changed lives only happen as we look and see his glory. Just think about that prayer. God, show me your glory. History hangs in or, or hangs on the balance of him answering that request. And we know according to the Bible, he will answer that request. He will show us his glory. And this morning we're going to be looking at all of Exodus chapter 33. Let me just give you a quick recap to bring us up to Exodus 33. So in Exodus 20, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. He stays up there a long time and the people begin to wonder where he is. They begin to say, where's Moses? He's gone. I'm scared. I feel vulnerable. I feel all Alone, others say, me too. Someone steps up and says, I have a great idea. Let's make us an idol that will help us to feel safe um, while we are waiting. And everybody around them says, that's a great idea. 
Let's do that. So they take off their earrings and their nose rings and their gold watches and the gold teeth out of their mouths. Um, and they give them to Aaron. Um, he takes it all and he makes a golden calf to which they worship wildly. If you can read Exodus 32 and just see how wildly they were worshiping. And so you get this picture. Moses is up on a mountain of fire and smoke with God getting the Ten Commandments. Meanwhile, all of Israel are in a valley acting like fools. So just get that picture in our minds. They're making fools of themselves. And needless to say, God is ticked off. So Moses and God have a series of conversations where Moses pleads with God not to destroy the people. And eventually God says, okay, yet um, there were some who would face the penalty for sin, which is death. And it's ironic that right smack in the middle of a section on worship. In Exodus 32, 31, 32, um, where God is telling Moses how he would tabernacle with the people, how he would dwell with the people, that we have a story about idolatry. Right in the middle of a place where God is saying, this is how you will worship me, we have a story about idolatry. And it, it highlights the fact that the human heart is an idol-making factory. Let me say it again. The human heart is an idol-making factory. Our sinful hearts will make an idol out of anything. We'll make an idol out of anything. It's what we do well. And let me just pause for just a second and kind of make a quick segue. And maybe I'm just wanting to get myself in trouble here. Or maybe I just want us to see something that I, I pray we see with, with great light um, today. This Wednesday, we will celebrate the 242nd anniversary of our founding Fathers giving us our national birth certificate, what we call the Declaration of Dependence, or Independence, excuse me, but was actually a Declaration of Dependence upon God. And I know that we live in a context where we have somehow convinced ourselves that America is the new Israel, and therefore God is um, required to continually bless us. And let me just say this, although I know that there are a few parallels that we can make between the nation of Israel and between America, the reality is this, America is not God's chosen people. We're not. We are not God's chosen people. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. God has indeed greatly, abundantly shed his grace on us. I believe that America is one of the greatest gifts God has ever given to the world around us, yet we have not responded appropriately to the grace of God. We haven't. We have not um, kept ourselves on our knees before him. We have not responded in an appropriate way before the grace of God. We have arrogantly and defiantly rebelled against the holy God of the universe. And it would be easy this morning for us just to say, hey, we're going to Go away from dangerous prayers, and instead we're going to have a nice prayer, and we're going to call it God Bless America, and we're going to call in Lee Greenwood, and he's going to make this um, an, an amazing special time for all of us. Yet, think about this. What, what is the point when we pray God Bless America? What is it that we're really praying? Are we really praying um, the words of Psalm 67 where we say God bless our nation so that we may be a blessing to all nations, so that all the people may praise you? Is that what we're praying? Or are we praying God bless us so that we can be safe, sound, insulated, and basically so we can live in a world that revolves around us. And I would say most of the time that's what we're praying. 
We want to live in a world that revolves around us, where nothing is asked of us, and that's kind of where we are. So this morning, I want to humbly say, before most of you turn off on me, I want to humbly say that the greatest need of God's people here and around the world is not God bless America. The greatest need of God's people here and around the world is God show us your glory. God show us your glory. In fact, it was Spurgeon who says of Moses' request, it seems to me the greatest stretch of faith that I have ever or either heard of or read of. It was great faith which made Abraham go into the plain to offer up intercession for a guilty city like Sodom. It was a vast faith which enabled Jacob to grasp the angel. It was a mighty faith which made Elijah rend the heavens and fetch down rain from skies which had been like brass. But it appears to me that this prayer, what we're about to read, contains a greater amount of faith than all the others put together. It is the greatest request that man could make of God. So let us read the context surrounding Moses' request, and then I pray that we will prayerfully desire the glory of God along with Moses. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read all of Exodus 33, and we're going to read what I believe, along with Spurgeon, is the greatest request that we could ever ask of God, but it is a request that God promises and loves to answer. Beginning at verse 1, When you get there, let me hear you say, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Good breath there. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord has said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meetings. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all of the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into his or into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people." 
And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock in which my, or, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, the prayer of our hearts, the prayer, Father, for our nation and for all nations today. Lord, for this, your church, and for every individual in it is, God, show us your glory. It is, Lord, we are starving for your glory. Show us your glory today. Speak to us, God, in a way that clearly shows us who you are. Oh, how we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So with the remaining time that we have this morning, I'm just going to go ahead and be honest with you. We have more material than I have time. So we'll see how this goes. But I want us to flesh out two truths concerning a God-honoring desire for his glory. For the glory of God. So the first is this. Seek the glory of God in the face of crisis. Seek the glory of God in the face of crisis. And what we just read was a huge crisis for Israel. Now it was self-inflicted. They had done it to themselves. But there was a huge crisis that was happening. And then think about it in our lives. In the midst of the crises that we go through. What do we find ourselves asking God for? Do we find ourselves in the midst of our crisis asking God to take it away from us? Or do we find ourselves most saying, God, show us your glory in it? Now, if we're going to be honest, and church is a good place to be honest, most of the time our prayer is, Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. Get it far from me. Remove it. And what we don't often do is say, God, be glorified in it. Be glorified in it. So think about this picture. As we face crisis and desire the glory of God, number one, we are dependent upon God's presence. We're dependent upon the presence of God. Yet, what is the presence of God? I think for many, the phrase God was with us just means we were successful and we got what we want. Or God be with you means I sure hope it works out for you. But here's what we know. The presence of God doesn't just mean success. Because in this chapter, God just said, I'll bless you, I'll give you what you want, but I won't go with you. You'll have what you want, but you won't have me. You won't have my presence. And this is where we need to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that it is possible for us to have much success and yet not have the presence of God. It's possible. It is possible for us to have much success in our lives and not have God's presence. Therefore, we must be very careful not to seek the blessings apart from the blesser, not to seek anything other than the presence of God. 
Think about what we just read. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. I will send an angel before you. I will not go up among you. And Moses said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And this is an interesting text because God says first, he says, I'm going to send an angel before you. And just think about this for us today. If God were just to say that, nothing else, just that, I'm going to send an angel before you. I think most of us would probably be pretty excited about that because we know, um, we know we don't have the culture's understanding of angels. We know that angels are not sweet, chubby little babies with wings. We know that angels, according to the Bible, are huge, massive creatures who are dedicated to the will and glory of God. So that would probably, for us, if that was all God said, it would seem like an amazing offer until we heard the rest of it. Until maybe God said, I'll give you that, but I won't give you me. You can have an angel, but you can't have me. And I love what Moses says in verse 15. Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And let me tell you what Moses understood. Moses understood what we tend to forget. Moses understood that the promised land was not the goal of Israel. God was. And let me tell you what we, as, what we as Christians tend to forget. Heaven is not our goal, brothers and sisters. God is. Sometimes what we do is we, in our minds, come up with a heaven, but it's void of God. I hear people all the time talk about heaven, and the thing that they forget, they never mention God. And let me tell you, heaven and everything you could ever imagine apart from God is hell. So let's make sure we understand Brothers and sisters, yes, one day we will go to a place free from sin, free from sickness, free from pain, with all the things that we could not even imagine. But the only reason it's good is because God is there. Therefore, God is the goal of our lives. And here's the thing. Moses wasn't satisfied with the promised land. He wanted the presence of the promised maker. He said, God, I need you. You're the one we need. And I wonder, in our lives, if God were to make this deal with us, and God were to promise us our heart's desire, whether it be financial, whether it be relational, whether it be physical, whether it be educational or occupational or anything else we could ever desire, and if God said, I'll give you what you want, but you won't have me, would we take the deal? And if we would, that's idolatry. And that's exactly what got Israel in the mess they were in. They were worshiping idols. They were worshiping anything other than God. And Moses understood his need and the people's need for the presence of God. In fact, I love what Moses does. Even after God says, okay, I'll go with you, Moses is still arguing, saying, oh, you better go with us. If you don't go with us, we're in trouble. Moses keeps arguing even after God answers because Moses knew that the blessing of the promised land without the presence of God was not a blessing but a curse. So we are dependent on God's presence. And then secondly, we are desperate for God's glory. So we think about in the midst of crisis, what we need most is the glory of God. Moses said, God, please show me your glory. And the glory of God is the, tums, the sum total excuse me, of who he is. God's glory is God's power plus his wisdom plus his mercy and grace plus his holiness plus his love plus every other attribute that makes him God. 
I love the words of Pastor Sam Storms who says, Glory is all of God that makes God God and shows him to be worthy of our praise, our boasting, our trust, and our hope, our confidence, and our joy. That is glory. Glory is all of God that makes God God. But then think about all that Moses had already seen. Moses had seen God in a burning bush. Moses was on the front lines of seeing God show his power in plague after plague after plague in Egypt. Moses had seen God in a pillar of fire by day, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Moses had literally met with God covered in a cloud of glory on Mount Sinai. Moses had met with God in the tent of meetings um, where a pillar of cloud stood at the entrance of the tent. If anybody had seen God's glory, it was Moses. So my first thought is, why in the world would Moses say, God, show me your glory? He had already seen God's glory. And the answer is, and the beauty is, I think once we have a glimpse of God's glory we should have an unquenchable desire for more of it. Once we've seen it, we should have a desire for more of it. And this begs the question, have we become satisfied with our knowledge of God all the while missing the glory of God? I think sometimes if we're not careful, churches can become classrooms um, just for learning facts about God. As if that were the point, instead of being a place where we corporately experience and commune with God. Just think about this. If you were to walk up to me and say, Micah, tell me about your wife. And I were to say, well, my wife was born Misty Dawn Cowart. She was born to um, Tony and Dolly Cowart on August 7th, 1977. She was named Misty Dawn because she was born on a misty day at dawn. Um, she graduated from First Coast High School in 1995. She met the love of her life and married him on September 11th, 1999. She has three children. If I said all those things, let me tell you, you would go, wow, that's pretty cool, but let me just say what I just did. All I did was tell you facts about her that anyone could know. Just, just facts. Now, if you said to me, tell me about your wife, Maybe I would tell you those things, but I would also tell you about the happiness she brings to my life and just about the little things that I love about her. Like this morning when my alarm goes off and she pushes me in the back and said, for the love of all that's right, will you get up and turn your alarm off? And I love the fact that she wakes up every morning and she's not quite angry, but she's not happy. And it, it keeps me on my toes and I love every minute of it. And here's the, the picture. We've got to be the temptation, I guess, is this, that we will end up worshiping our knowledge of the Bible and stop short of actually worshiping the God of the Bible. We can't stop short of him. And the point is, is that Moses is not asking for some of God. Moses is asking for all of God. And I love this picture because what, what attribute is God about to show Moses? Will God show Moses his justice, his holiness, his power, his love? Well, we read verses 19 and 20, and God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I think that's important for this reason. When we walk through difficulty, when we walk through crises, I think the first thing that we forget, that we doubt, or that we question is the goodness of God. 
When we are walking through a difficult time, sometimes we are tempted to say, God, are you really good? And Israel and Moses were walking through a difficult time. And so what God says is, just so you don't forget, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. You're going to know that I am good. I am good. I'm sovereignly good. God is good to all. We read that in Psalm 145.9, but think about this. God doesn't have to be good to any. He doesn't owe us his goodness. This is who he is. This is his character, and we thank him for that. And just follow me here. God is at work in ways that we can't always see, in ways that we can't even understand, yet the truth remains he is working. There's a story I've read in a prayer that I want to share with you. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce was a senior minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. After being diagnosed with liver cancer, he addressed his congregation um, concerning how to pray for his illness. And his words, I think, model for us how we should respond to suffering or, or crises. And his words highlight God's goodness and God's sovereignty. Listen to what he says. A number of you have asked, what can you do? A relevant question, I guess, when you pray is pray for what? Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that the God who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my father ten legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet that's where God is most glorified. If I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God. That's not novel. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by. God does everything according to his will. But what I've been impressed with mostly is something in addition to that. It's possible to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent. God's in charge, but he doesn't care. But it's not that. God is not only the one who is in charge, God is also good. Everything he does is good. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept it and move forward. And who knows what God will do. And some of you might be thinking right now, that's awesome and that's powerful, but you're talking about Moses. Or you're talking about the words of a pastor. My experience can't even compare with that. And I would say this, oh, but it can. Oh, but it can. For not only must we seek the glory of God in the face of crisis, secondly, the second truth that we're going to unpack, we must see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We must see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I don't want to discount anything that Moses experienced, but today we get to behold God's glory in a totally new, totally fresh, totally full way in the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Just think about what we need most. So what we need most is the glory of God. But let me just tell you what our sinful flesh tells us we need most. The glory of us. So there is a battle here between the glory of us and what our flesh tells us we need and the glory of God and what the word tells us we need most. It reminds me of the words of John Piper who says, We are all starved for the glory of God, not the glory of self. He says, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. What could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on this speck called earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his own self-image? It is a great sadness that this is the gospel of the modern world. The Christian gospel is about the glory of Christ, not about me. And when it is in some measure about me, it is not about my being made much of by God, but about God mercifully enabling me to enjoy making much of him. So we see the glory of God in the face of of Christ. First of all, for in Christ we behold The glory of God. In Christ, we behold the glory of God. The incredible picture of the New Testament is that we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. John put it simply and straightforwardly when John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory filled with grace and filled with truth. We've seen it all found in the face of Christ. The word became flesh, and he did so without ever ceasing to be God. Jesus made the Father known to us, period. This is the great issue for humanity, and this is the great issue for every person in this room. Will you see the glory of God in the face of Christ, or will you turn away from Christ and thus turn away from the glory of God? In Christ, we, ha- we see the one who makes it possible for us to get a glimpse of God and not die. In Christ, we see that picture. So in Christ, we behold the glory of God. And then secondly, in Christ, we enter into the presence of God. Because of who Christ is, we no longer have to stand back in fear. Think about this. What we just read in Exodus 33, Moses is communing with God. The people of Israel are standing back. They're not going near God. They fear God. They don't want to go into his presence. They know to go into his presence is their death. So they stand back. But because of Christ, brothers and sisters, we no longer have to stand back. We are able to, according to Hebrews 10, draw near. When Jesus is your go-between, when Jesus is your Savior, the throne of God is no longer a throne of judgment. It is now a throne of grace. Therefore, don't stay away from him. Draw near to him. Listen to what Hebrews 4 says. Hebrews 4, 14 and 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is the beauty for us today, brothers and sisters. We are able to enter into the presence of God through Christ. Let me just add something here. Sometimes I think we think very small thoughts concerning prayer. So much so that we don't do much of it. 
But when we understand that the only reason we are able to approach a holy God is because Jesus gave his life. And in his death, the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom, showing that we have access to God. We come to realize there's nothing small about prayer. There's nothing insignificant or tiny about prayer. Christ laid down his life so that you and I could come into the presence of God. Therefore, we don't just stand back and hope somebody else is doing it for us. We draw near because we can. Because we can. So, brothers and sisters, when we pray, God, show me your glory. We're not praying that prayer like a, like a mediator, like Moses was. He was mediating for the people of Israel. We are praying that prayer because we have a mediator. We have someone who represents us before the Father. We have Jesus. And if you read John 17, on the way to the cross, Jesus was concerned about the glory of God. He was even concerned praying for the glory of God. Let me just end today by reminding us that this is a prayer that God loves to answer. Lord, show me your glory. And when we pray that prayer, God might answer us in a countless, um, countless of many ways. He may show us some attribute of his character that we've missed or that we've minimized. He may open our eyes to see his smile and his delight for us, even in the backdrop of our pain and suffering. So he'll open our eyes that even in the midst of our pain, we'll see his delight and his love for us. As we read this week, Daniel, in the book of Daniel, Daniel's praying to God, things are bad, and yet the angel comes to Daniel and says, when you began to pray, God sent me. Meaning, God didn't wait until you said amen. The second you started praying, God sent me. And here's the message, Daniel. God loves you. Sometimes God will allow us to see that, to see his smile, his delight, his love, even in the midst of difficulty. Maybe God might even meet a need in our lives that warms our souls and fills us with gratitude. Or maybe we might even have a relational breakthrough, a relationship that we thought was dead, yet we pray, God, show me your glory, and God, by his glory, for his glory, revives that relationship that we seemed, we thought was humanly impossible to see revived, and yet God does it but the, the fullest response to our plea God showed me your glory is to turn our eyes to Jesus Colossians 2 9 says in him the whole fullness of deity dwells and I know what we're thinking is yeah that's the answer Jesus is always the answer it's the church answer raise your hand Jesus I, I get that but it doesn't mean because we know the answer that we stop asking or we stop looking. On the contrary, it inspires us to ask and to look all the more. We don't want to stop asking. We don't want to stop looking. We know what our answer is. I tell you, and I, I know I'm short for time, but just let me tell you, don't minimize what we do. Don't minimize anything. Yesterday, out of the blue, I'm at home missing the girls are, are out doing their thing. They're shopping. I'm at home in Malachi. Out of the blue, I'm preparing lunch for him. And he says, Dad, 2 Peter 1.3. And I said, what, buddy? And he said, 2 Peter 1.3. And I was like, oh, man. I heard, I heard that going on in the classroom. And he says this. God has given us everything. And sometimes we minimize that. We walk by a 
four and five year old classroom during vacation Bible school and we see Bob and April and Cindy back there teaching the kids and we go, ah, are they really getting it? Or do, do we really see? And here's the picture, brothers and sisters, they're getting it. We're getting it. We're seeing it. We're seeing the glory of God on display. We're seeing what he's doing. The enemy's trying to blind our eyes to what he's doing. Oh, may God open our eyes. May we desire his glory. May we say, oh, God, in light of our great need, in light of the direction of our nation, in light of the, the need for all nations to know you, God, show us your, your glory. Show us your glory. Let's not miss his glory. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to call Brother Frank and the musician, musician sorry, forward and enter into a time of invitation and consecration. And let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And Lord, like never before, our prayer is, God, show us your glory. In the midst of our sickness, God, show us your glory. In the midst of our pain, God, show us your glory. In the midst of where nothing makes sense, God, show us your glory. In the midst of our loss, God, show us your glory. In the midst of fears and doubts and failures, God, show us your glory. God, we need your glory. We're not starving for our own glory. God, we're starving for your glory. We need your glory. God, show us your glory. God, show your glory among us individually. Show your glory in our families. Show your glory, God, in this, your church. Show your glory in this nation. Show your glory among all nations. Show us your glory. Show us your glory, Father. We need you. We need your presence. We don't want to settle just for the blessings apart from you, the blesser, God. If you don't go with us, don't take us up from here, God. We need you. God, help us to grab to and hold tight to you today, knowing that you are holding tight to us. Thank you for all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.